This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello out there in Michigan radio land. Another big, exciting week in Michigan politics and government this past week. The 100th Michigan legislature convened in Lansing on Wednesday. All the members of the House and Senate, 148 of them, were sworn in on the floors of the House and Senate in the state capitol. It was a mob scene. Families were there, seated on the floors in both chambers, with their members, and so it was a very exciting time. And we have got a special guest here at the beginning of the program. I'm going to explain in a second uh, exactly why this man is so important uh, in the 100th legislature. He is State Senator Ken Horn, Republican of Saginaw. Senator Horn, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you. It's good, Bill. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on because, uh, you know, in past years or even decades, I mean, we've been hearing about, you know, Michigan's struggles to reassert itself as an economic powerhouse uh, back in the 80s when Jim Blanchard was governor. uh, His campaign theme and his theme in his state of the state was jobs, jobs, jobs. And, of course, we heard that a lot from John Engler. We heard it a lot uh, just in the last eight years from Governor Rick Snyder, who was a very successful businessman in the private sector and came in with an agenda that included uh, economic development. He made, I think, a record number of trade missions overseas for a governor. But, you know, strangely, uh, I haven't heard that much talk uh, with this new administration coming in, the Gretchen Whitmer administration as governor, and with all the other new office holders, a lot of freshmen uh, in the legislature this year, both House and Senate, uh, they've concentrated on other issues that you hear a lot about. You hear about uh, Line 5, Straits of Mackinac. You hear about uh, auto insurance rate reform. You hear about civil asset forfeiture, you hear about a lot of other things, but you don't hear much about economic development and jobs, jobs, jobs. I mean, that should be priority number one, it seems to me. Uh, And Ken Horn, you are the guy who is going to be really in the catbird seat in terms of deciding uh, how well Michigan responds to the economic challenges that confront us. You're going to chair the newly formed Senate Economic and Small Business Development Committee, uh, which is a combination of uh, committees that existed in the last session of the legislature. They've been merged. And you also are going to chair two Senate appropriation subcommittees, the one on capital outlay, the building committee, uh, and also talent and economic development uh, slash MEDC, Michigan Economic Development Corporation. So, Ken Horn, I'd like you to just start by, first of all, telling us what exactly is the geographic shape of your Senate district? Uh, What territory do you represent? And then why don't you just launch into whatever you want to tell us about your plans 
as chairs of these very important committees and subcommittees. Uh, thanks. Yeah, the, the district is kind of a funny key shape. Uh, the entire county of Saginaw, of which Frankenmuth uh, is my hometown, and then uh, coming down U.S. 23, if you come south from uh, Saginaw County, pretty much every township, you know, to the, on the you know to the west side of 23. So Fenton, you know, Flushing. If people are familiar, driving up, you know, with some of those road signs. Kind of like it, the the western uh, townships, uh, the western tier of townships in Genesee County. Correct. So, uh, so uh, it is. Uh, it is actually a, a you know a terrific district to you know to represent. I uh, you know coming from Frankmuth is where I met my wife, raised my kids, and uh, and get a chance to invite people up uh, uh, to enjoy the chicken dinners and, you know, and the Christmas atmosphere uh, year round. But uh, uh, for economic development, in fact, uh, tourism is going to uh, tourism issues will be coming to my committee as well. Uh, you notice that natural resources and tourism is uh, has been changed into something just a little bit different now too, and so that so we're going to be dealing with an awful lot of issues, uh, job creation, and then the and then finding talented people are going to be one of Michigan's biggest challenges. This is a national problem, you know, finding skilled and talented people for uh, pick a sector, manufacturing, uh, you know, the you know the public sector. Police, fire, you know, even we have a, even have a teacher shortage. So we're trying to get uh, to make sure that we have kids that are uh, ready for uh, ready to, uh, for great careers in the state of Michigan. And in what we know, and think about it this way, when we were working on the Marshall Plan uh, last term, uh, we went on a did a road tour, and part of the PowerPoint uh, uh, presentation that uh, Roger Curtis did. Uh, we, we learned that there were going to be about 811,000 unfilled jobs by the year 2024 if we do nothing in terms of career development. That 800,000 people has a gross salary, a gross payroll value of about $50 billion. And so when you think about the investment that we need to make into, uh, into our, our, our young people, into you know into attracting talent into the state of Michigan, because of the uh, autonomous vehicle work that our committee did, uh, we are literally competing with the Silicon Valley, you know for you know for talented people in terms of software engineers and IT people. Our number one uh, priority is getting uh, getting people in here to you know to uh, to do computer work for us and set up uh, set up our. Our automobiles, so that they they have all the the best, best and greatest technology, and then you know, and after we have all these these great computers that we're putting on wheels, uh, Michigan still has to melt steel. It still has to build things, and that's who we are. And so, and so it's going to be all hands on deck. I'm hoping to hear from the governor on February 5th, our state of the state address, uh, that uh, career and. Uh, readiness and that uh, job creation is still one of our top priorities. Yeah, you know, when you talk about filling all these jobs that you hope to create or that are being created, you mentioned talent shortage. Why do we have such a talent shortage here in Michigan, in your opinion? Is our talent shortage here worse than it is in other states? Uh, What's going on there? No, it's not worse. I mean, I also... 
I also uh, sit on the executive committee for the Council of State Governments, and I'll chair it uh, in 2020, and I'll bring the conference here to the uh, here to Detroit. And in in that, uh, we still I talk to legislators from 11 states and four Canadian provinces. We all have the same problem, and I and I think it's that we were we were so eager to make sure that our kids had better lives than we did uh, as we grew up uh, that. We forgot to tell them what you know what is important in life. You know that they find careers if they like working with their hands. Then by golly, find a career where you know where you can where you can work with your hands. You like working with your uh, with your head. Find a career that does that. You like working outdoors. You like working indoors. Well, we you know my kids went to college. You know, a general education didn't have a you know didn't have a goal. I forgot to tell them you know why college was important to them. And so, so we've got a situation now where, uh, where people have, you know, have get into careers that they're really not interested in because they think it's just the right thing to do. But we've got to change that mindset. We've got to get to the parents. We've got to get to the, uh, the students and teach them that here are some careers that are, that may interest you, right? And so we have career cruising programs, MyBright, Michigan.org, Pathfinders through the MEDC, you know, to tell you uh, how to, you know, how to start looking. And so, so I think we're, hey, we're going to be on the right track, but I, but it, we're, we've got a long ways to go. Okay. That was State Senator Ken Horn from Saginaw County. Uh, we're going to be back with him for another 10 minutes to talk about economic development, job creation here in Michigan. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back with State Senator Ken Horn, Republican of Saginaw County, who is chairman of a whole bunch of impressive committees uh, in the Senate, uh, Senate Economic and Small Business Development Committee. He's also chair of two Senate Appropriations Subcommittees, Capital Outlay and Talent and Economic Development uh, and the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. He also is going to get a lot of tourism legislation, he tells us. Uh, Senator Horn, I just want to ask you, uh, what about legislation that would create incentives for cities to redevelop some of the state's biggest eyesores and contaminated sites? Aren't you going to be handling some of that stuff, too? Yeah, we we have to continue our work on it, but if you remember... In last term, I, I had the, what I refer to as the Michigan uh, Thrive Initiative, and it was an economic development uh, program, an incentive program, but it actually acts as the the largest urban redevelopment uh, bill that that Michigan's seen in decades. And if you if you look at sites around the state, uh, you know from Petoskey to Detroit to Grand Rapids. There are brownfields where buildings used to be that, you know, they've got old steel in the ground or they, they're contaminated in some way, and uh, we just need to get those things fixed. And and, and we don't know how to, uh, you know, come up with the money for it as the state of Michigan. You know, businesses that, a, that uh, were there before don't exist anymore. You can't go back on them. So, so this piece of legislation that allows, allows a developer to build on a, an old site, clean it up, and then, and they get, in a sense, reimbursed for it. 
So if you look at the old J.L. Hudson site, for example, downtown Detroit, uh, the Dan Gilbert team uh, broke ground on a, a new skyscraper there. It'll be the tallest building between Chicago and New York. They'll have a glass observation deck on top. You'll be able to stand up there and take pictures of all the great things that are happening in Detroit these days. But we need to partner up with the private sector, let them do a community service of cleanup of these brownfields, uh, as we call them, and and then uh, and then when they do that, and they risk their capital on a on a new building, uh, they they see some benefit to that, you know, in terms of a tax credit or incentive, and so we've got that in place, and so we have a lot more work to do. Uh, we need to clean up a lot. Of, I think there are some, you know, some three thousand sites that need to be cleaned up around the state, and in partnering, government and private sector partnering together can uh, can certainly handle this. Senator, you know, uh, your majority leader, Mike Shirky, uh, Republican of Jackson County, he said, uh, look, I hear all the talk about, you know, what the administration, the new administration, the Gretchen Whitmer uh, administration may be planning to do on a lot of issues. Uh, but we march to our own cadence in the Senate. I mean, we've got our own agenda, our own program. I'd just like to ask you, I mean, how did you see the Senate interfacing with the governor's office when Rick Snyder was governor? And do you see or hear anything from the Whitmer administration uh, now in office for a couple of weeks um, that would indicate they're going to have a different approach on economic development than Rick Snyder? Or is it going to be a continuation? I mean, what's going on there? Well, I think, you know, this is just, I haven't talked to the new governor yet about this issue. And, and you know, it is our intent to sit down and, and see what kind of common goals that we have. But I guarantee you that, you know, the operating engineers that uh, that supported Governor Whitmer, you know, that these trades, trades unions, they want to build things in the state of Michigan. And, you know, and she's going to be torn, I think, uh, between you know, some of uh, her supporters in the environmentalist world and her operating engineers when it comes to the Line 5 tunnel. You know, it's just one example. But I, I think overall we just have to be able to make sense, uh, combine forces and say what's good for, you know, for, you know, for the workers of the state of Michigan is also good for the businesses. We just have to have some, you know, some kind of a real balance there. And, and I think we can strike that balance. And, and, and I, the Senate will uh, indeed you know, march to its own drum. We're going to be uh, setting our own policies. We're going to be have an early budget. We're going to show the world what uh, what we're interested in, and the governor will respond with her own budget and uh, and with her state of the state. And we'll see how those things combine, and we'll work on the things we can and work out the differences. What about the Michigan Economic Development Corporation? I mean, that's been the source of some controversy over the years, uh, what it's done and hasn't done. What do you think about that? I think it's uh, absolutely vital to have it. Uh, and there has been some controversy over the years, and, you know, different politics come in uh, into play. Uh, you know, there's uh, – but they're, they're necessary if we're going to be growing uh, businesses because they work very closely with – Local community economic development uh, economic development organizations all over the state, and you know the Pure Michigan campaign comes through there. Uh, all of these things are very vital. There is no uh, successful organization, no private business, no public business that uh, that 
cannot invest into itself or that isn't investing into itself. You know, the state of Michigan needs to invest into itself at some point, and it's, it's a good vehicle to do it. Ken Horn, one of your colleagues in the Senate, the Senate Democratic leader, Jim Ananick, uh, talked this week a little bit about so-called clawback legislation. Can you explain what clawback legislation is, what it means, and uh, is something maybe going to happen on that, and is it a good thing or not? It can be. We're, we're going to sit down and talk. Uh, uh, Senator Ananick is my neighbor in Genesee County, and so we're, we're going to talk on a couple of different issues. On um, this one in particular, you'll, you'll, uh, the Michigan Thrive Initiative that I mentioned, the good jobs package that we passed, are, are insulated from the general fund. And so they're, they create restricted funds, and, they, and there's no incentive unless they perform, literally. And, but there are other uh, areas that we can talk about. If we're going to be giving somebody an incentive for training and development of employees, we give them, you know, a two, three million dollars, and then they this they is train a their, subsidy from the state to yes. a, a business. Okay, go ahead. Correct. And uh, so, so it becomes a subsidy, a direct subsidy from our general fund. Uh, then, and they get they train these employees, but they decide to move to another state. Uh, we should be able to claw that money back. It makes the incentive accountable and inspires the, the business to remain here in the state of Michigan. Where, I mean, if we're going to invest in training of employee, we're going to invest into their research, into their development. Uh, we don't want them up and leaving and taking our money with them. What about tourism? What do you see the big uh, ticket items are uh, when it comes to tourism? Well, I think I, I think we're going to have to focus because every town, like for a, like my Frank Lou, Traverse City, Mackinac, uh, you know, Holland, Michigan, all of these great uh, tourist spots, including Greenfield Village and Henry Ford Museum, uh, they're not going anywhere, right? But they have to be able to promote themselves. So we're going to continue the Pure Michigan campaign. Hopefully, Tim Allen will still continue to do the voiceover. It's been very successful. Uh, but what we what we really need to look at, especially with the growing Detroit and Grand Rapids, is big ticket items like a Super Bowl, like a major golf tournament. And so we, I hope that at some point that we can invest in those big things so that the eyes of the world turn to Michigan. Ken Horn, listen, we could keep talking about this for literally hours. I mean, it's huge, Um, and you are right in the center of it. Uh, Congratulations on your appointment uh, to the chairmanship of these various committees and subcommittees in the state Senate. Ken Horn, Republican of Saginaw, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with a longtime friend. He is Mark Grebner, who is a longtime partner in the uh, practical political consulting firm in Lansing. For years, he was Michigan's leading political list broker, still is, as far as I can see. And he is an elected Ingham County commissioner. In fact, I believe, maybe with the exception of one or two other county commissioners somewhere else in the state, you are probably the longest-serving county commissioner in Michigan right now. What do you think, Mark Grebner? I think I'm happy to be here and and back on your show. And and 
I have never actually tracked down. I think that probably out in the rural parts of Michigan, there are people who maybe have died in office and nobody's noticed yet. <laughs> who may who may be in office forever, embalmed. <laughs> okay, they'd, well, be, they'd be tough to beat. They would be tough to beat. Well, look, we're we're going to start out. I'm just going to let you bring up anything you want to bring up. You have some observations, I think, about. Uh, Governor Rick Snyder's uh, performance in office in his uh, last frenetic days uh, in December in the lame duck session of the legislature and some of his vetoes and some of his appointments. Uh, What do you have to say about that? Well, you know, in the last few days, we had a chance to see what he is like if he doesn't have any future deal to complete. He's not He's not working with the Republican majorities. He doesn't have to be courteous or subservient to them. He doesn't have to worry about quid pro quos or revenge. And so we have a chance to see what he would would have been like if there hadn't been any outside pressure. And what we saw, maybe not a clear proof of it, but it appeared that he is just a sort of an ordinary center-right business person who doesn't have any real affiliation to the Republican Party. And I say that because, in the first place, his vetoes kind of convey that. You know, that, that wherever there was anything that was overtly partisan and would have been a benefit specifically to the Republican Party or Republican office holders, he tended to veto it. But where you were talking about just something that your average business person would think was a bad idea, like raising the minimum wage or or a mandatory sick leave, or dozens of other things like that, uh, he showed, again, as he did with um, supporting right to work, finally, that he just doesn't really believe in unions or minimum wage or welfare or things like that. You know, he just he's just against, you know, just instinctively, but not because of a partisan platform. And I thought the most interesting thing was his appointments to important judiciary seats on his way out, there were, I counted about five appointments that he made in the last few days to judgeships and the MSU Board of Trustees. Now, these are significant appointments. And he scattered them around, you know, a couple of clear Republican appointments, a couple of clear Democratic appointments. And he wasn't doing it, as far as I can tell, to pay anybody off or because he'd made a deal. But um, he, he clearly appointed somebody to the Democratic to the uh, to the MSU Board of Trustees, who is a pretty clear Democrat, who served to undermine John Engler's hold on the presidency there, and that must have been, uh, you know, a, a just kind of a statement of where he he felt. He he also appointed a Democrat to the Ingham County Circuit Court, which is a pretty important bench, even now that they've taken the legislature took away from the Democrats on that bench. Uh, quite a bit of their power over state legislation, they still have residual, a fairly strong uh, influence over the course of events because of the capital city being here. But instead of appointing a partisan Republican to the bench, he appointed, if she's not actively, uh, if she's not active in the party, she's at least a clearly identified Democrat to the, the office. So I thought it was just very interesting to see that, that underneath Rick Snyder, doesn't really seem to have any allegiance to the the Republican Party. He's just sort of, you know, moderately conservative business person. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very cogent observation. I would say I don't necessarily think that means he gets much credit from the Democrats for not being no, as overtly partisan. Not. No, no, he certainly doesn't show the slightest interest in helping the Democratic Party or Democratic office holders as a group. And also, uh, they are still not very happy with him because, as you say, he's basically a center-right businessman who doesn't believe in a lot of things the Democratic Party believes in, right? Right, right. But but on process issues, he's not so bad. Right. Well, what about the Michigan State University Board of Trustees? That is really kind of fascinating. And they just elected a new chairperson, Diane Byram, a former Democratic uh, leader in the State House and State Senate and has been on the MSU board for a number of years. And there was quite a struggle uh, to elect a new chair of the board uh, to replace Brian Breslin, who uh, did not choose to run for reelection and was termed out of office at the end of last year. And uh, Diane Byram, uh, in a cliffhanger vote, uh, emerged as the winner. How much was that affected by Rick Snyder's appointment of uh, the replacement for George Perlis uh, that he made at the end of the year? Uh, Nancy Schlichting. Yes. Um, well, I don't know the internal politics of the MSU board. I, I, I just don't have enough brain capacity that I can devote enough to understand it. It would be like watching the game of or the game of Thor, uh, Thrones and keeping track of the plot. I just don't have that much attention to spare. So I don't watch the TV, and I and I and I don't watch uh, uh, MSU trustee uh, politicking. But it's but that final de- decision was between two people who want John Engler out. It's interesting that that, that was the choice. There was no pro John Engler figure, you know, struggling for control, and that's because with Schlichting's uh, appointment and the election of two Democrats to the board, there's now. What a six to two Democratic majority, if you count Joel Ferguson as a Democrat, and if you count Schlichting as a Democrat, which you are, I I am counting her as a Democrat. I think that she said that in the papers. It also corresponds to the uh, information on my database of her previous uh, voting in in presidential primaries and so on. Um, She she doesn't show any evidence of being interested in party politics or. Uh, you know, like uh, somebody who shows up at Democratic Party fundraisers. But but just like uh, Snyder leans a little right, she leans a little left. Um, so so I think that what we see there is, is that MSU now has a, a, a working majority on the Board of, of uh, Trustees that does not include Joel Ferguson that is interested in moving past the Anger administration. The Engler, John Engler, I don't think this has been widely noted, has, after he briefly flirted with uh, hiring one Democrat, Jim Blanchard, and putting him on a very hefty retainer and then sending him away and never having him heard from again, has basically packed MSU with one long list of Republican Party hacks. There, the, the MSU's administration, every everybody that Engler has hired, as far as I can tell, is is a partisan Republican who generally came from his administration. Well, so, if, uh, if if the board is now six two Democratic, I mean, can John Engler, five three? 
I mean, you have to either worry one, about Joel. Either one, Let's five, three, six, two, whatever. Yeah. Do you think John Engler is going to last uh, until a new president uh, is installed, or might they uh, get rid of him early? Now you're back into MSU board politics. God only knows. And maybe he would leave early rather than being given the heave-ho. Uh, he'd be a lot of heaving. So uh, I don't know. I kind of assume that, he'll, that they'll find some semi-gracious formula in which he stays until his successor is, is in office. But, but that, I don't know. I, I don't think there's any open hostility there. At least I haven't seen evidence of that from, from the, the, the dim vantage point I have. But, but clearly, you know, Engler does not represent the future of MSU. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break here, and then we'll be back with 10 more minutes of Mark Rebner on various political happenings in Michigan. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with our final segment with Mark Grebner, who is a longtime member of the Ingham County Board of Commissioners, a Democrat from East Lansing. Uh, He has been affiliated for several decades, let us put it that way, uh, with Practical Political Consulting. He's Michigan's leading political list broker. Uh, Mark Grebner, let me just ask you, Do you have any other observations you'd like to make? Uh, I know you've done this on this program before, uh, past fall, um, about what happened in the vote in the general election on November 6th and uh, what happened, let's say, with one of the ballot proposals, Proposal 3, going forward that you think is significant. Well, first I'd like to talk about the things that I was surprised by in 2018. I mean, there were a lot of things that happened that were not surprising, but two surprises. In the first place, uh, if you remember, Chris Thomas guessed there would be 4 million votes in the election, which is way out of line with previous elections. And so I topped him by offering 4.2 million as my guess, because, because I, I wasn't willing to be outbid. And the final vote was actually 4.3 million votes, which is it's just hard even to work out mathematically how that many people <laughs> could discover an interest in politics in a gubernatorial election that appeared to me to be voting against Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump isn't on the ballot. It, it really was an amazing turnout. So that's one surprise. The other surprise was the Democratic performance wasn't as big as I expected. I really thought this would be like 2006, where we saw a 56 or 57 percent Democratic baseline, but we only saw 53 percent. The Republican vote was not as intimidated. It hasn't been chipped away as much as I thought. I really thought we'd see three or four percentage points higher Democratic support at the, you know, the state board of education level, way down at the bottom of the ticket where nobody knows who's running. So um, even so, now we go forward. If Donald Trump drew out 4.3 million voters in a gubernatorial election. In the past, we've seen 5 million votes in presidential elections. I'm guessing we're going to see 6 million votes completely off the scale in Michigan. And so if we see 6 million voters in, in 2020's general election, I would have thought that would push the Democratic percentage up to 58 or so. 
But but given this 53, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll only be, say, 55 percent Democratic. Well, are these people, if the Democratic percentage isn't as big as you thought it would be, and yet the total vote was huge, uh, both in the primary and the general election, and maybe, as you say, in 2020, are these kind of independent people who are just uh, Trump haters who are going to turn out and vote simply because they don't like Donald Trump? That's going to drive the vote way up. They're not necessarily Democrats. They may be independents. They may be even some Republicans. Right. What's happened is that everybody has become so politicized that the turnout is just much larger. And, and and so as one side gets wound up and excited, it excites other people, too. It excites their relatives and their kids and their co-workers and so on. I mean, it's just harder and harder to avoid political discussions, even if you try. But But having said that, the marginal voters we add as we get into larger and larger turnouts tend to be more Democratic than the population as a whole. And that's because the people with the characteristics of solid voters, just go through and name them, highly educated, uh, homeowners, older, married, uh, re- uh, uh, not renters, not students at college, not transient. So the people who are the most stable and the most dependable voters tend to be the more Republican than the population as a whole. As you add 20-year-olds and single people and renters and, I mean, just to give you an example, people with criminal uh, records and so on, as you add people like that to the electorate, you're adding, for every Republican, you're adding maybe 1.3 Democrats. So the mix tends to be skewed toward the Democratic Party as turnout gets larger, and it tends to be a little bit more Republican if the turnout shrinks. So, so I think we can look at, unless something intervenes, unless an event intervenes, I think we can expect the general election in 2020 to have a Democratic baseline of about maybe 55. And if that's true, it's hard to imagine Republicans winning any statewide office. Now, of course, there is no statewide office in 2020 except President and uh, Gary Peters' Senate seat. But, but, you know, it should be a pretty Democratic year. What about the presidential primary, which will be coming up, uh, believe it or not, roughly a year from now or 13 months from now? We can't be sure. And you may want to talk about that. We've had some very intense, exciting presidential primaries on both sides of the ballot, uh, Democratic and Republican in the past. What do you expect is going to happen next year? Well, in the first place, there's going to be some really tough bargaining between the Democrats and Republicans in the legislature over the exact of the presidential primary, I think they have to adopt a new statute because I think the old one is now defective. Right. Um, and, and so they're going to have to come to terms, and the terms they reach have to comply with the Democratic National Committee's rules. Less so, they also have to comply with the Republicans, but the Republican rules are easier to match. So whatever the Democrats have done nationally, the DNC, uh, the legislature has to adopt a statute which complies with that, Um, And the details of it will be quite interesting because I suppose the Republicans will be trying to prevent uh, a Republican primary, so making it difficult to get on the ballot for the Republicans, while the Democrats will probably need a bus before each of their uh, debates to bring all the candidates on stage. Maybe they'll just erect bleachers for them. I don't know how many we have at this point, 20, 25 rumored candidates? In the early stages, I suppose they'll be on the ballot. 
at least. Yeah. Uh, especially because Michigan statute has typically said that anybody who's sort of mentioned in the media as being a candidate gets on by default. I mean, whether you've declared or not. So back in the days that they are uh, finalizing the ballot, which I suppose will be in November of this year, um, hell, everybody will get on there. So, so I think the turnout is going to be absurdly large, but it may be very skewed. There may not be much a Republican primary. There may be Donald Trump and maybe nobody else or maybe one or two symbolic uh, victims. But on the Democratic side, I think it'll be uh, you know, a range of candidates with one to match every taste. Well, um, well, in the past, there's been a race to make Michigan near the front of the pack, to make us early. I think, I think they've given up on that. I think that, that Michigan feels chastened by the 2008 debacle in which it's not clear if, if their delegates were exactly seated or partly seated or would have been seated uh, as a result of going first. But I think Michigan is, has given up on that particular quest and just wants to know where they're supposed to stand in line, and I think they're going to be told March. What about Proposal 3 that was approved by the voters on November 6th? Um, what do you see the impact of that going forward? Well, at this point, everybody in the in the Democratic Party and maybe in the Republican Party too ought to be thinking about how it's going to be implemented. The it changed uh, it, it greatly liberalized Michigan's registration and voting rules, and the Republicans on their way out sent to Snyder and Snyder signed a bill somewhat interfering with uh, uh, election day registration and early voting right up before the election. Uh, by, by I think, prohibiting cities and townships from opening up satellite offices to accept early votes. Uh, that doesn't sound like it means much if you live in Sumter Township, because you can go to the Sumter Township Hall. But I don't think that early voting is going to work in Flint or Detroit or Lansing on Election Day if you have to literally drive to City Hall in order to vote. I mean, Detroit City Hall is not a place that you're going to have say, 10 or 20,000 people registered to vote and, and cast ballots on Election Day. Just, it, it just isn't feasible to get that many people in and out of the building. The obvious answer would have been to set up satellite locations. But I think the Republicans have tried to prohibit that. Whether that's legally sound or not, I don't know. But, but putting that aside, what we see now is that anybody can apply for an absentee ballot. And anybody can, I think, get their name onto a list that the townships and cities keep of people to whom applications are automatically mailed before every election. And on, on election day or before the election, in the past, you could limit your attention to people who were registered to vote. But today, the best target for a get-out-to-vote tribe is somebody who's not registered. Because, because if he or she is alive and 18 years old and living in Michigan and a U.S. citizen, if you can just get them to City Hall... They can apply for an absentee ballot, receive it, cast it, and leave. And you've converted one random person on the street into a vote. You know what? We could keep talking about this. I know there's more that you want to say about Proposal 3, but we'll save that for another day and maybe a discussion on uh, other stuff uh, which has an electoral impact, particularly the presidential primary. But I want to thank Mark Grebner for another sterling performance here, explaining it all for us. Thank you very much, Mark Grebner. I love to listen to myself talk. (laughs) 
We're glad to listen. Thank you.